Welcome, Carolyn. The unmute button's on the lower right, Carolyn. It's a little mic button next to the thumbs up. Okay. Okay, got it. There you go. Okay. Hey, thanks, Antonio. Happy to be here. I'm just so sorry about all this. <laughs> Um, no, yeah. no, no, not at all, Carolyn. I'm, I'm, I'm both shocked and pleased to hear that you're one of the the sort of traditionalist analog stalwarts who does not have a smartphone. I, well, you know, I know everyone is always like, well, wait, you're writing on Silicon Valley and you don't have a smartphone, and and yeah, I mean, it does keep me more sane. I'm never going to get one either. You know, as they say, the the best dealers don't use Carolyn. <laughs> so, <laughs> so how many people have been trying to like give me free phones? I'm like, no, I'm not taking. It. Don't give in. Don't give in. Don't give in. Um, okay, so let's let's go directly to your book since I know you've got a hard stop at one. Um, I could go to 105 probably. So okay, yeah. Okay, um, so the book we're talking about uh, is Work Pray Code, which I learned about through uh, someone who wanted me to write a review of it, which I still owe them, by the way, and still plan on doing. It's for a, it's for a print publication, and so the deadline is now in April. So I've, I've got some, some time, but I, um, I, I, really, I really enjoyed the book. And um, you know, I would say to everyone listening that even though it, it is from an academic publisher, it reads a lot better than your typical <laughs> academic book. And it's, it's really quite fascinating. And I think you, you draw a parallel that, that I also did in my memoir of working at Facebook, by the way. I, I think it's... Um, it's a very common observation, although you go much more profoundly than I think anybody else ever has, about how a lot of startup or even big company tech life increasingly resembles the sort of sociological dynamics of a cult. Yes. So I, I okay, so maybe to begin with, I'm curious because again, you're not you know sort of from the tech world. I'm curious what got you into this angle, or how, how did this this book idea start, or is it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So actually, so you're you're right. I'm I'm not from the tech world, and I wasn't interested in in tech initially um, or work initially. Um, so I'm a sociologist of religion, and I'm really interested in looking at and understanding religion in contemporary society. Um, and like most scholars of religion, I have always studied religious things. Uh, people who identify as religious institutions or communities, texts that, you know, identify as religious. But I think that if anyone who is living in, um, you know, a major metropolitan area in the West knows now today is that the number of people who are um, identifying as religious is declining. And so how do you then study religion? That was the question that I was faced with. Um, and so I actually first started the project by looking at um, yoga studios and yoga because that's a secular space. So I was interested in religion and secular spaces. And so I went to, um, I studied yoga studios and I looked at essentially, you know, what are secular spaces, but that have religious icons, religious practices or quasi-religious, you know, they could be. And as I interviewed people um, and I talked to them, it was really interesting because work kept on coming up. And when I asked them, well, why do you practice yoga? What does it do for you? It would always go back to like, well, it helps me relax at the end of the day, a long day of work, or, you know, it helps me to focus. It helps me to, you know, renew my mind so that I can go back and be a better, you know, nurse, doctor, lawyer, engineer, whatever it is, fill in the blank. And so something struck me about that where I was looking for the sacred in religious things, but it became clear in these narratives that actually what was sacred was work and that what they were using was yoga practice was actually a therapeutic practice so that they could 
worship work more and be better workers. So that's what led me to thinking about, you know, studying the workplace um, and spirituality in the workplace. Yeah. yeah and, and you get, get into your book a little bit later and I, I hope to get into it, how in many ways this, this corporate religiosity actually serves very utilitarian productive purposes, right? Yes, there's, there, there's a lot more capitalism than, than God in it. But I, yeah. I just want to start just to go in like, in just order, order, so to speak, of your actual book, um, I found your your first chapter, um, or maybe it's it's section uh, called uh, "Losing Religion and Finding It at Work." Yeah. In which, and again, I, I again here, I think the the sort of academic rigor of it is interesting. Um, you, you actually detail how people often people either come to work and they either had no religion or they had a religion in the past that they left, um, and. Th- they then adopt, you know, the, the corporate Kool-Aid, so to speak, which yeah. is funny. The metaphor obviously comes from the Jonestown Massacre, which itself was a cult. And yes. <laughs> um, and then they either really do drink the Kool-Aid, i.e. adopt the workplace cult, or many of them don't. And yeah. you you actually sort of describe the differences there between those various groups. Can, can you maybe talk about that a little bit? Because I, I thought it was really interesting. Yeah. So one of the things that I notice when I... Um, so first of all, um, I, I also study immigration and religion, and that was my first book. And so I'm, I'm pretty sensitive to how religion and spirituality changes in the process of migration. And so one of the things that was really clear to me, and if, you know, if you're in Silicon Valley, is that no one's from there. Everyone is from somewhere else. So they're, essen- they're essentially all immigrants, like migrants, um, you know, not just from places like Korea or Germany or China, but, you know, also from like Kansas or Oregon or, you know, Illinois, these other places. And what I noticed is that these people who were coming from, um, the people would come and they would move to Silicon Valley. And many of them came from more religious parts of the country and they would be religious and they were religious. And then after they started working in their companies, they lost their religion. They left their faith. And what was interesting was that, you know, I would talk to them about it and I would say, well, why did you, you know, did you have a crisis of faith? Is there some reason why you left your, uh, you know, why you left your faith? And it was interesting because no one could really explain why they didn't. It was not a crisis of belief, but instead it was more that the workplace had started to meet the religious, the needs that their religions had once fulfilled. You know, so I interviewed one guy who used to be the president of his Christian fraternity um, in in Georgia, and he was very devout, really active in his church, like, you know, just spent most of his time um, with his, his, the, his buddies in his church. And he had this nine to five job working as a programmer for a bank. But then he joined a startup and essentially he poured all of his religious energy into the startup. And the startup really became his church group where, you know, he played the guitar with them. He ate three meals with them. You know, he did all of the socializing with them. And so the thing here that I'm trying to emphasize is that essentially these um, communi- these uh, workplaces, these tech workplaces are fulfilling the social and spiritual and material needs of their employees. And so essentially they don't need other social institutions. Um, and so I want to just get back to the question that you're asking me, which is like, you notice that there were some people not everyone got pulled into the vortex of work. And one of the things that I noticed this interesting pattern was 
first of all, older people didn't necessarily get pulled in. There was definitely a generational pattern. And what you saw with older people is they had established families, but they were also much more active in civic institutions in the community. Um, and then among younger people, they were the ones who tended to be pulled into the vortex of work because many of them were unattached, unencumbered. However, for those people who were religious, these were the people who were not pulled into the vortex of work because essentially they had another really tight community, kind of like another cult-like type community was, that was competing with the workplace. Um, but these people were exceptionally religious. Uh, they weren't just, they weren't just sort of like, you know, people who go on uh, Christmas and Easter. <laughs> they were extremely involved. Right. I mean, in some sense, capitalism is serving as the god of last resort for a lot of these people, so to speak, in that, yeah. that right? I mean, I mean I, I'm using sociological terms more loosely than I'm sure you would, but it's, it's almost like Durkheim's enemy in that they feel a little bit um, dissociated from a lot of the sort of overlapping circles that typically defined human life, religious, family, yeah. you know, whatever. And the, the company just takes over all of it and just becomes their entire identity. Yeah. Well, abs yes, absolutely. Another part of this, Antonio, is simply that there is this dearth of civic institutions in Silicon Valley. Because like when I, I would talk, the people that I would interview, and I over interviewed over 100 folks um, in Silicon Valley, and when I asked them about community, where they found community, it's always the same answer. Oh, community is really a challenge. Um, and so in a way, it wasn't, I wouldn't even say it was of last resort, you know, it was, it was the most available and easiest thing to grab onto essentially. Right. I mean, it's funny in my case, as like a total side thread, um, yeah. I, I, I've been in this Jewish conversion process and like I joined the synagogue and this whole thing mm -hmm. and it was, and it was this very overt sort of antidote to subsuming yourself in that, in that corporate thing. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and I, I think many people, probably not to my face, but either look askance at it or ask me crazy questions like, why would you do that? Yeah. And it's like, look, if you think the Yom Kippur ceremony is silly, let, let me tell you about some of the all hands I've been in. Right? Yeah. <laughs> because when it comes to social silliness, that just takes the cake. Let me tell you, the Jewish liturgy is, uh, you know, is preferable by comparison. Um, is, and, and let me move on. So I hate to move on so quickly, Karen, but we don't have much time. There's a lot in this book that I do want to get to. Um, so just to take it down a, a kind of a notch from this very lost, lofty religious realm, the next chapter is, I, I think, I, I hope this becomes like a meme or a thing. You call it co corporate maternalism, yeah. which uh -huh. makes it sound a little bit less like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is your God or your prophet and more like, well, it's like your mom who does your laundry, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it, c can you talk a little bit about that and how, in, in some sense, that the logistics of it is kind of how... A lot of people fall into this, into this life. Yeah, so absolutely. So it's this idea of corporate maternalism where companies provide for the personal care of their employees so that they are happy, healthy, and productive. And it is, you know, a play on this term corporate paternalism, which was um, used to describe um, these companies, like these big company cultures in, you know, the middle of the 20th century. Um but um, I'm doing a play on corporate maternalism because it's really just, I would say, the to such a the totalistic and holistic nature of 
the company's reach in their employees' lives so that it's, you know, body, mind, and spirit. Um, and so, you know, if you're in the Bay Area, you know, there's a lot about like being holistic and this is all considered to be a very good thing. But if you look at the flip side of a holistic workplace is it's actually a very intrusive and invasive workspace, right? And so it's this notion with corporate maternalism is based on this idea that essentially um, workers, uh, that companies want their, their, their employees to be working as much as possible and that they don't want them to get burned out. And so the way that they take care of burnout is essentially by taking care of the life side of the work work life equation. So essentially the companies take care of the provisions of life by offering food, the gym, the hobbies, the social clubs, the masseuse, the haircuts, you know, the mindfulness classes, the spirituality, et cetera, et cetera. So it's that notion essentially that, you know, where you have these companies and I talk about this concept of the personal is the professional. And when I spoke to HR professionals, they all had this idea that essentially you are going to be performing at your optimum um, when you are whole, you know, when you are fully taken care of in your body, mind and spirit and you're happy and you need to be optimum. You need to be in an optimum state spiritually, optimum state mentally and physically to be able to compete in, um, you know, the um, Silicon Valley tech workplace. Yeah, I mean that. You, you, again, your chapter titles are just so good, Carolyn. <laughs> I'm just going to be quoting them. But your but your next chapter title is managing souls, which yeah. you would think is is a task that you know a priest or a rabbi would assign themselves. But in fact, yeah. you, you you talk to a lot of either HR professionals or executive coaches, and I, and you, you get into this a little bit in the in the next chapter, which also has a great title called "Killing the Buddha," um, or sorry, the Dharma according to Google, um, and. and you, you know, you cite, I think, like an Argentinian economist, among others, who had yeah. this sort of spiritual transformation. And, uh, you know, I, I think when I, I think we suffer from an excess of irony and cynicism in our society. So I try not yeah. to indulge it kind of reflexively too much because I, I, I think it's it, it, it leads to nowhere at the end of the day. But it, so but it is the case. And I've certainly met such people. And I probably was that person when I worked at some of these all consuming mm-hmm. companies like Facebook, in which this like your actual spiritual sense of self and meaning does align with corporate interests and mm-hmm. a, a less cynical take will be, well, I don't know. Why not? I mean, you know, maybe, maybe you do find fulfillment in your work in a deep way and those do align, mm-hmm. you know, is, is there necessarily a problem with that? Yeah. So I think that, I think that, um, here's, here's, let me just step back and just make a have comment on that. What I found really fascinating is that people became more spiritual because of the workplace, simply because there were these spiritual provisions, right? They're executive coaches. They had these, and they don't use the language of spirituality. They usually call it personal development, right? Or professional development. Um, and so it's under, it's through essentially the vehicle or the institution of work. Um And so, you know, if we look at kind of iconic spiritual journeys or pilgrimages and spiritual leaders um, in um, in American culture or just, you know, globally, like we think about the Buddha, we think about Christ, we think about someone like, uh, you know, Henry David Thoreau. Um, For them, their spiritual journeys were essentially these stories of 
leaving society. That's that's at least in the West, or not even in the West, but in these, you know, in these revered religious traditions, the spiritual journey is one where you leave social institutions and you spend time in discernment um, and prayer and practice um, to get to sort of hear the voice of God, right? But what we have happening here in these cases is that these practices of discernment are all done through the institution of the workplace. So it becomes defined through the workplace and people's authentic selves and their callings and their missions are defined through the workplace. So, I mean, you could say, well, isn't that all well and good? But I guess my response to that would be, well, there's something really hollow um, and impoverished about that if in the end it all leads to the bottom line, you know, and I think that in the name of uh, that, that in appropriating spiritual practices and religious practices in order to align your soul to your work or your productive labor to understand, you know, how your productive labor is the self-actualization of yourself. I think that a lot gets left out in these religious traditions um, and, or in these practices. So for instance, a sense of, um, and the ethical traditions, um, a sense of um, uh, of accountability or kinship to communities outside of the workplace. Um, yeah, I mean, like I I, I previously leaked. Um, you know, you, you have a chapter called "Killing the Buddha," and mm-hmm. you and you coined another term, which you, what you call whitened Buddhism, which I found interesting, which yeah. was this flavor of very sort of therapeutic almost like executive life coaching style Buddhism, which yeah. again has none of the ethical precepts, which of course would involve ethical responsibilities, plus like a community component, which again would mean some unit of organization outside of, uh, outside of the company. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So in that chapter, yeah, I, I call it killing the Buddha because it's this, um, this is actually a phrase um, that comes from um from 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 a Chinese Buddhist teacher, and I'm really interested in what has to happen when Buddhism crosses from sec, uh, from from a um, religious from a religious sphere into a secular sphere. So, what does it have to renounce? <laughs> you know, what does it have to give up? And and when I talked about white white Buddhism, it's essentially that sort of ubiquitous uni- universal secularism that. Um, that essentially we don't see that erases the racial and ethnic component of Buddhism and its um, and its Asian heritage. Um, so that um, when something becomes white, it basically becomes universal and ubiquitous, and also secular in our world. Yeah, I mean, you have a, you have a couple of juicy quotes here. Um... Um, you know, how they've kind of made a sort of scientific Buddhism, which sounds very like Marxist in a way, uh-huh. but it's like Buddhism, Buddhism is not a religion. It's a science of the mind. And then, of course, you counterquote the, the Dalai Lama contradicting that person. And, yeah. you know, or things like um, what I like about uh, Zen is the stark simplicity. There's nothing to believe. Just sit. It's kind of this. It's kind of this. Em- it's kind of this empty sort of meditation practice that d- that doesn't have a lot of the traditional features of a religion in it. Um Right, right. It's and to them, what's interesting is that they say, "Well, it's stripped down to the fundamentals, and this is what it is. It's it's just this. It's just breathing." But it's a you know that that would that's up for dispute. What are the fundamentals of it, right? Um, and so, what you see, I mean, not just in Silicon Valley, but all over 
the West is really this appropriation of meditation for whatever you want it to be. Yeah, I mean, you cite the you cite the example that uh, quote Asian people are curiously missing in text Buddhism, yeah. <laughs> right? That it's a purely white phenomenon. Um, this white yeah. form of Buddhism, yeah. um, which is unusual, right? Because there's there's obviously there's obviously real or I, I don't I'm gonna call it real because that's kind of a value judgment, but there is Buddhism practiced as a religion in the Bay Area. It just exists completely separate from this corporate form of Buddhism, or or seems to. Yes, it does. It exists totally, and, it, and it's not acknowledged at all. In fact, it's kind of an embarrassment, I think, <laughs> almost the way, because then it becomes associated with religion. Right. It doesn't have the, it, it can't circulate in the tech workplace in the same way they become. So there is a lot among many of the meditation entrepreneurs that I interviewed, they really had to struggle with they basically had to hide the, they, they couldn't mention what they called the B word um, in their teachings. Yeah. It's so unusual. Um, as a total random thing, Karen, I just remember I used to go to the Thai Buddhist temple in Berkeley and they used to have oh, like yeah. a Saturday, they used to have a Saturday brunch thing. Do, do they still do that? Yeah. They, um, you know what? I don't know if they still have it during the pandemic, but they've had it for many years and it's, and it's a big hit. Oh yeah, I remember that. It was I it was it was so spectacular. Anyhow, it just came to mind when I was thinking, yeah, I mean there's obviously Buddhist temples there, but I, I can't imagine a Google product manager actually going to it. Um <laughs> other than for the brunch, maybe. Um so, cool. So um yeah, and then sort of to, and again, I hate to be rushing through what's an interesting book. I, I encourage everyone to read it because there's there's a lot more detail here, but just due to the constraints of time and our, our late start, um I think your concluding chapter is interesting. Here's where it gets, uh, I think, maybe a, a little bit cynical um, in the sense that... Um, not just a little bit. I think. It's- <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you end with an Alistair McIntyre quote, which I thought was interesting. I thought you had, yeah. um, you, you went totally trad there at the end, but we'll, we'll get to that in a, in a yeah, second. Sure. But um, your last chapter is called Tectopia, which is, I assume, in a slightly sardonic uh, way. This is yeah. not really a utopia. And, and I guess the... Um, the idea being is that you know, in some sense, capitalism is is co-opting religion and mm-hmm. the obvious hold that it has on the human mind at, at every level, right? And yeah. essentially exploiting it, and it's in some sense exploiting a very human urge. And this is where I might as well just quote it because I already hinted at it. At the very end, you actually quote Alistair McIntyre. For those who aren't mm-hmm. familiar, McIntyre was a, a sort of mid or mid to late twentieth century uh, philosopher, and his um, famous book after virtue um is often quoted by conservative uh, columnists or, or thinkers and it's basically a rumination on what becomes a human ethics uh i mean it's almost a dostoevsky in question that if um if nothing is sacred everything is is permitted and it's mm-hmm. it's difficult to operate in a world in which you don't have things like ethics and taboos um anyhow it, it's it's a whole big work but you, you have a great quote um which is um uh let's see I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part? To whom and to what, this is you now, to whom or to what will we choose to belong? What will we choose to worship? And you actually end the chapter in, with a question mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because I think, maybe not in this chapter, but the previous one in there somewhere, you know, you kind of cite that in many big tech companies, right, they, they try to pull the God trick 
of motivating their employees through religion, but it ends up being basically mom doing the laundry and you having to like play along in somewhat dumb seeming all hands. And the reality is that lots of people are really just burnt out or super anxious. And like, it's, it's not a religion. It's not a community. It's still a workplace. You still have performance reviews. You can get fired. There's promotions, there's politics, all the rest of it, right? Reality kind of intrudes, but you have to play along as if it's something between a family and a religion. And it actually grinds on some people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 as a random like meta question, Carolyn, like I, I assume, how did you source the sources? Did you just ask around or like prowl LinkedIn or like friends of friends? How, how did you find, cause you have a so, really wide spectrum of people. Yeah. So how I, um, I started attending, um, um, mindfulness and work meetings, um, and workshops. And from there I met people, um, and then I did what sociologists call snowball sampling. So it was f- going from friends, uh, people that they recommended from there. And then I would also, um, and then I, you know, would meet people in companies and, and, and essentially build my sample from there. Interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. Cause again, I, I go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go, yeah, no, 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 go, go ahead. ahead. No, I, I was just asking, cause I, I didn't detect like, they weren't all in the same, like, you know, help group or something. Like, I didn't understand the pattern. Like, it seemed as if you had a very wide sprinkling of people. How, how long did it take to do the research for, for the book, Carolyn? Well, <laughs> it, took, it took a long time. It took about, it took five years. Um, wow. But it wasn't, it wasn't like me doing interviews every single day. It was me being a professor <laughs> and doing interviews too. But um, yeah, I wanted to find a broad, I wanted to find kind of a wide range of people. So I wasn't just getting only some voices. I actually had to specifically seek out religious people to interview because they were much harder to find. Um, and, and I'm glad I did because I heard a different story when I interviewed religious people. Um, but, um, but, you know, Antonio, can I get back to like some of the stuff you were talking about earlier with, um, yeah, with Alistair McIntyre. I mean, I think that the point that the reason I ended with that question is because, you know, my main point is that work is replacing religion in this book, and that essentially that work is where people find identity, fulfillment, belonging. And this is not just a story of Silicon Valley. I think this is really, Silicon Valley is essentially just, I think, a more extreme example that illustrates that trends that have been in the making in the U.S. for the last 40 years. Um, So if you talk to any professional today, it's like, if they don't find their work meaningful, they're a loser, right? Everyone is expected to find, to, to identify your, with your work and find it to be meaningful. Um, and even the way that we talk about work now, we say, oh, I joined Facebook. I joined Google, right? This whole, this terminology is the same way that we talk about belonging to a religious community. I joined this church. I joined this temple or synagogue. Um, And so essentially what I'm trying to get at with ending by that Alistair McIntyre quote is by saying like, well, who do you belong to? Because who do you belong to really shapes your, your community, the, the institutions you belong to are really formative, are really important in your spiritual and interior formation, whether you like it or not. Like even the people who are working in these tech companies and that that don't like it and who kind of don't drink the Kool-Aid, this belonging to this institution, being part of those practices, being part of that culture is forming their interiors and their it's, it, it's forming their spirituality. Um, and so I think that, you know, one of the 
other people that I quote is the late writer David Foster Wallace. Um, and he says, there's no such thing as atheists. We all worship something. Um, the only thing is that we get to choose. And so, you know, here in Tectopia, uh, what people are worshiping is work. And so the question that I'm trying to ask at the at the end of the book is, well, how do we stop worshiping work? It's essentially, you know, by the only way we can stop worshiping work is by choosing to worship something else. And as a sociologist, we, our worship is very much structured by the communities that we belong to and the institutions we belong to. So you can't just opt out like, oh, I'm going to quit. Or like people have been talking about like, oh, I'm going to bake sourdough bread or watch Netflix or even go, you know, do extreme like mountain biking. Like those are hobbies, right? Um, but those aren't, those aren't things that you're going to sacrifice or submit to or surrender to like you are going to do to work. So essentially we need to, I think, as a society, build different um, and new and different sources of fulfillment and, uh, you know, quote unquote houses, you know, if you will, houses of worship where we can find fulfillment and, and, and devote ourselves to and be willing to surrender and sacrifice to them. Um, that's sort of how we counter um, and and break what I call the theocracy of work. Yeah, and the, and the passage you're quoting from Foster Wallace, I believe, is from his famous uh, commencement address. I think it was at Kenyon College yes. that was published. That was published as its own book. The one that's about um, you know what's water with efficient water, right? Which exactly. I, I I imagine most people have actually read in, in meme form. It's a stunning piece of writing. He was a, a really gifted writer. Um, you, you know, it's it, so let's. I mean, we've got a few more minutes. Um, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a wild-eyed theory that the actual trained academic in the room can shoot down Caroline, um, <laughs> okay. but. Um, What's you know I I've been, I often think a lot about the differences between Judaism and Christianity since I'm sort of switching teams so to speak and although there's a lot of things in common there's a lot of things that are very different yeah. um, and even within subvariants of Christianity and it strikes me that a lot of this company as religion thing is really Protestant right yes. Pro mm -hmm. Pro yes. Protestantism is this thought that you have a very personal relationship to the deity and your personal confession of faith it's kind of a weekend hobby type thing. Mm -hmm. um, there can be a community component, but it's perhaps not a hyper focus. And there's a lot less sort of rigid doctrine and dogma than you would typically find or, or structured practice that you would find in either Catholicism or Judaism. And so mm -hmm. if, if you ask yourself the question, well, I don't know, can companies replace religion? I mean, I, I would say on the Protestant side, maybe. And, and I think <laughs> people who are used to religion as Protestantism, maybe go that direction. I think people who are raised Catholic or Jewish or perhaps other faiths that I'm less familiar with would probably say, no, there's still something missing. This is not, this is never going to actually fill the, fill the gap. Yeah. Well, um, actually that's a great observation that you make and, and parts of it I would agree with. I think that in traditions like, um, Judaism, um, Catholicism, Islam, they're, much more embodied traditions, um, and there's much more of an emphasis on 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 ritual um, and the collective practice. Um, and you know, Protestant is very sort of heady and very much about, as you said, you know, this individual relationship. And so, I think that in the kind of corporate spirituality that is being um, that is being practiced, there's very there's a lot of this emphasis on like, what's your calling? What's your mission? You know, and it's very much about uh, this 
exactly this, you know, individual discernment and one's relationship to, I don't know, for lack of a better word, sometimes people say the universe, <laughs> you know, in Silicon Valley. Um, and so I think, I think that's true and that what is missing is part of that, um, I think, the, the ritual and the collective ritual. However, there is still there is still this collective component in I think these startups where this sense that you need to kind of sacrifice your own individual um, um, that you, that you're working towards this greater good, and that I think that people really get this feeling of transcendence by being part of this team, you know, and working towards something, and and um, and the experience of sacrificing oneself for this larger good, I think. I think that's in all traditions, even in Protestantism as well. And so I think that um, I do think that the work culture does capture some of that, that as well. Yeah, no, I mean, you know what, um, what was his name? Becker called immortality projects, the idea of, you know, transcending the sort of sordidness of everyday life by dedication to some transcendent goal is something particularly at early stage startups. I certainly experienced, you can certainly feel part of something bigger in, and sort of immolating yourself on this pyre of work that is work. But yeah. I, I, but I, I still do think that there's aspects of it that are just simply absent. Um, I, I'm trying to observe, like, at, for example, at my synagogue, there's a number of people who work in tech, actually. And it's I think Judaism is unique in that it's always been this sort of minority religion that has sort of existed apart from whatever the environment that it's in, or at mm-hmm. least for the, for the past 2,000 years. And so, it, you know, it... It tends mm-hmm. to it tends to melt or meld very very well with whatever current form of corporate life. Like at the synagogue, there's people who work at Google actually and whatever, and I suspect they're probably in that set of people who are older and already religious and maybe don't get so subsumed into that hole and you know just go to Yom Kippur services or whatever and mm-hmm. have a very different experience and and they don't do ten day silent you know yoga retreats. <laughs> Northern yeah. California, or not, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I suspect that's probably not, not what they do. Um, yeah. That said, if they were to try to inject their religion into the corporate sphere, it would like inspire a revolt because it would feel too structured and too weird and too political and all the rest of it. But um, yeah, I mean, I interviewed one, one Buddhist um, Zen priest who told me that, um, that his, that his Buddhism actually, his Zen actually made him less ambitious <laughs> and um and it was interesting because he was someone who was coming at it from the perspective like this is my religious practice this is not my work practice and, and so for him it was actually counter to the goals of the company and the you know and of capitalism right i mean right i i don't know that much about buddhism but from the little that i've read um you know, it, it, it does seem as if it would contradict a lot of capitalist goals. Um, I mean, the annihilation of the self and all the rest of it seems very different than sort of gunning for your next promotion. Um, mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, I, I know that we're running over time, Caroline. In fact, you had a hard stop at one and it's one Oh four. So I want to, I do want to respect your time. I think between my fast talking and my, and our skipping around, I think we managed <laughs> to, to cover most of the book, but I did want to leave you a chance to say an, anything else um, about the book or about your work before we, before I let you go? Um, no, I think, I think that we covered it all. Thank you, Antonio. I really appreciate it. It was fun talking to you. Good. And uh, so, yes, likewise, Carolyn, thanks for making time. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still working on a review of the book that will come out in printed form in a month or two. And thanks, everyone, for joining. Thank you for your patience. Sorry for the, um, 
the hiccup at the beginning. There's always a little bit of a hiccup, Carolyn, so don't, don't feel too bad about it. There's always a little bit of a of a cold start problem. Um, I think we, we might have broken the record, though, with this one. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. No, but again, it, it always happens. I, what we should have done, actually, it's my fault. Uh, we should have, we should have like prepped and like done a test run beforehand or something. In any case, don't worry about it, Caroline. It's great. I think we covered everything I wanted to cover. And again, thanks again for writing this really good book, which I, I totally recommend. Work, Pray, Code by Carolyn Chen, available where all fine books are sold. Um, I've actually got two copies, Carolyn, you're, you're, or maybe even three. I think your publisher sent me the galley oh. version, and then I got I, I just got the finished version. Okay. Um, so. That means you have to read it three times. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so noted, Carolyn. I will do that. Um, well, thanks, Carolyn, and uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us. And, oh, just as a, as a total teaser drop, next week, I know that the date has moved around a lot. Um, I've got basically every original founder of another book came out called The Founders by Jimmy Sani about the early history of PayPal. And I've got more or less every founder of PayPal on one call talking about it next Friday. So Great. yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> Feel free to join, Carolyn. Now you're on the app. You're, <laughs> you can join. Um, but in any case, uh, thanks, uh, pull request people. And um, as usual, I'll be posting this with a shareable link soon, Carolyn, so you can share it. And um, a lot of people after the live show tend to listen to it. So it's kind of like it exists like a podcast okay. from now on. Cool. All right. Well, all right. Thanks a lot, Carolyn. See you. Bye.